You're listening to the Entrepreneur Podcast from the Western Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, powered by Ivy. My name is Eric Morris, and I'll be the host for this session. The reward for taking out Bose, Panasonic, and Samsung was getting to play against Amazon, Google, and Apple. That's a common joke at Patrick Spence's Santa Barbara-based audio giant, Sonos, which is chiefly responsible for the rise of the smart speaker. An HB898 grad, Spence joined the company in 2012 and took over as CEO five years later. But Sonos wasn't Spence's first rodeo in the fast-moving world of consumer electronics. For 14 years, Spence was an integral part of RIM BlackBerry, serving a number of roles before ultimately becoming the executive vice president of sales and marketing. During that time, the company grew from 50 million in revenue to more than 20 billion, and from 150 people to more than 17,000. In this episode, Spence shares lessons from the highs and lows of his career, his philosophy on technology and innovation, Sonos legal battles with Google, and the different outlooks that shape entrepreneurs on either side of the 49th parallel. I, I think everyone in the audience will know a little bit about Sonos in, in, in general. Hopefully everybody has a Sonos product uh, in, in their home, but can you tell us a little bit about their ethos? What is the Sonos ethos and where do you want to take it? Where, what do you kind of see as the vision? Yeah, so you know, we really uh, kind of took the world of uh, computing and melded it with wireless and what was happening in streaming um, as well. And so I, I often talk about Sonos being the story of software eating audio because we took a lot of software engineers um, and the fact that uh, all of music was going online with streaming and uh, downloads and digital basically. And then, you know, mashed that together and took all the complexity of trying to bring all of this stuff together, like Wi-Fi and computers and all of these to create really the first smart speaker. Um, and we really focused in the first phase on the home and filling your home with music was really our first clear kind of mission point. And we've expanded that, um, you know, we've expanded it to really have an ambition to be the world's leading sound experience company. And so now we do things like work with Audi to put speakers in cars, um, you know, and we work with Ikea to um, actually they build, you know, uh, speakers, which are more like furniture, like lamps that have sound in them. And so we see sound being a really, really big space, an interesting space in which to play. And we kind of take hardware and software and bring it all together to create these amazing products that uh, people love. And we do, you know, when I joined um, back in 2012, we were doing about 200 million, uh, under 200 million in revenue. And this year we'll do about 2 billion in revenue. Wow. So, you know, I've had the good fortune of being, you know, part of two um, incredible growth stories and, uh, you know, hopefully um, there'll be some learning today from some of that. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. Those are both uh, both incredible stories and what uh, fantastic journeys you've been on. I love the idea of uh, software eight audio, although the, the audio is, is fantastic. But one of the things that I love about it is how easy it is to set up. Uh, certainly for me, uh, you know, just connecting it into my stereo and, and having it play in multiple rooms was uh, was fabulous. So love my system. Thank you. And I, you. I get the software piece of that. That's pretty yeah. cool. All right. So your, you know, your career uh, between BlackBerry and Sonos, a little bit different than the typical Ivy grad, yes. a little different than the typical business grad for that matter. So 
you know, what was, was there an early indication, hey, I want to, I want to work in a startup, I want to work in tech, uh, you know, where did that come from? What was the inspiration that influenced you? Yeah, no, really, it's fascinating, right, when you start to look back. So it's been 20, I think it'll be 24 years for me in tech, I can hardly believe it, it feels like I was at Ivy just yesterday. But both sets of my grandparents were farmers. And very much, you know, I think that's like the ultimate in entrepreneur and kind of, you know, fighting the elements and everything that comes at you. And, and so I think there's a spirit there that I definitely admire and, you know, spent a lot of time with them. And I think one of my uncles was an entrepreneur and started produce and flowers and, and a bunch of agricultural businesses. And I always kind of looked up to him uh, because he seemed to have an exciting job and it was cool and, and those yeah. kind of things. But I would say... One of the most formative things as I've thought back on my life is we were, we had the good fortune when I was in, I think it was grade three or four, that we were one of the schools in London that actually received a Commodore PET computer. And, you know, I was able to use that and um, do some programming. And it really fascinated me, like the way it would work and what we could do. And, you know, I was thinking about it, you know, I could create a program which could do addition and like send a little rocket on the screen. And it was the coolest thing, you know, when you think about <laughs> it now and think about what's possible, it's kind of like, oh my goodness, but it was so cool. And I just wanted to understand, right, like how it worked and, and those kind of things. So we were lucky enough to you know, eventually my parents splurged to get one at home. And I spent a lot of time, you know, typing programs and trying to come up with new programs and fun things to do. Interestingly enough, I think I got away from that. There's two formative things in my life. One is I think the technology and my passion and curiosity, quite frankly, around technology yeah. and then team sports. So I played a lot of team sports, played um, volleyball at Western. And I think I got back in touch with the technology side, actually, when I went um, back to Ivy and we started to get into um, some programming and, and some things that we were doing there in management science. And it started to re-interest me and like kind of reignite the flame a little bit. And it was fascinating because all of the forces, you know, of the school were very much like, you know, start in consulting or investment banking or something yeah. like that. But I felt like, no, like the technology is where I belonged. And like you said, it was quite different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that that story wouldn't be as unusual today. You know, a lot of our students now have grown up with tech and, and yes. computers in their homes, you know, for their whole life. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. back then, yeah, it was a little different for sure. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Uh, you know, any favorite memories of, uh, of that Ivy uh, time that you were with us or Western? Yeah. I mean, m most of them involve the seeps or the spoke. Yeah. And, and like, yeah. I do think as you look back, right, you look back on the friendships that you have and I still am very good friends with three grads from Ivy and we get together um, at least annually, you know, and it's just like we were back at school um, yeah. and, and those kind of things. And so I, I do think like the relationships and the network that you build, I'm in touch with a lot of different folks from Ivy from time to time. And, and so that's special. I do think, I'm not sure it's done anymore, but 48 hour reports, you know, when we had those deadlines and like the pressure of that in a group environment, figuring out who would do what, kind of working through some of the you know, some of the issues and different decisions and some of those things, it's so applicable to real life and actually trying to go through and make tough decisions and deadlines and some of these things. Um, I just feel really well set up in the conversations we had, the cases we would go through and assignments like that kind of put you in a great position to solve, you know, real world problems. And so I look back fondly on, you know, those 40 hour reports for sure, like as part of the school was a really interesting and kind of like challenging um, experience. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear it as well. Uh, somebody wants to know already, Patrick, if you read all the books behind it. 
between me and my wife, we have, yes. So some of them are my wife, some of them are mine, but we have, and it's very funny because I do it all hands with uh, the entire company every week uh, from here. And I've had that question a couple of times for people that there as well, because people actually ask and they're like, is it real? Is it a background? No, this is real. It's real. Have these books and we're big readers. So Yeah, fantastic. Mine's uh, just an illustration. It's the new entrepreneurship building that they just beautiful. Lot, so pretty. Yeah. About that. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to research in motion. Uh, you know, you spent 14 years there. A uh, variety of roles, obviously, uh, increasing accountability and responsibilities you went. You've kind of been through being first in a market and then seeing all the big players come in. And, uh, you know, what are some of those lessons that you learned while you were at RIM that you apply now at Sonos uh, around design, innovation, competition? It's a big question. But, uh, yeah, no, it, it's a huge question. <laughs> um, you know, and I think we started out with a hypothesis, you know, at RIM and, and really some, I think what you want to find are some, particularly as an entrepreneur, is some macro trends that are happening that you can ride the wave of, right? And because then it just comes down to like team execution kind of timing as well. We were kind of at the intersection of the world of computing, you know, kind of shrinking, right? And becoming something that you could put inside a handheld form factor. So that was a big thing. And we worked closely with Intel to do a 386 processor at that point um, into, you know, a handheld um, device. Then wireless was getting to a point where you could transmit packets um, and text and some data in a way that you couldn't uh, previously. So that was kind of new and up and coming. And today it's everywhere, but this was at a time where, you know, that, that was brand new. And then email was just emerging at that particular point in time. We'd used it at IV a little bit and was happening. It's funny to talk about these things in hindsight, given how much we use them now. But, you know, at the company, we, we saw the convergence of these trends and we said we can put together a solution um, that's a little bit different and an, an integrated solution. And Eric, you talked about the simplicity of Sonos, right? And it's very similar is that, so at RIM, there was a ton of complexity behind the scenes, right? And a ton of different engineering, hardcore engineering disciplines that we had to take and meld together to create an experience that then a consumer could actually use, right? And there was so much complexity into it, but really trying to create it into something that was simple for the consumer was key. And it's exactly the same way at Sonos, which is we have disciplines, such hardcore engineering disciplines, like real rocket science that happens. Yeah. Our job is to try and figure out how we take all of that great work and make it super simple for customers and, and create a great experience, right? And so there were two kind of in putting it, bringing it to life. There were two academic type theories that I would say, um, you know, kind of uh, were important in both cases. One is Clay Christensen's jobs to be done and really thinking through that, right. As opposed to technology, because what you can find particularly in technology companies is sometimes you will, you know, find yourself falling in love with a particular technology, right. And you lose sight of why is this important to the customer, right. And let's remember why we're here and what we're doing. Um, and the other is Jeffrey Moore and his great, you know, writing around crossing the chasm and inside the tornado and some of right. these technology adoption yeah. curves and kind of how to approach that. And so my entire career has been about being an underdog when you talk about those competitors that were out there, right? And the incumbents yeah. that are there. And so, you know, uh, at RIM in the early days, it was like, there's no way you could possibly play in this space because of, you know, Motorola or there's a company called Glen Air that did paging, you know, and then. As we move to phone, there's no way you can play in this space because of Nokia, you know, and Motorola and Sony Ericsson, right? And then it's been the same at Sonos, which was like, you can't possibly be successful because of Bose and Panasonic and Samsung and some of these players. And I always joke with the team that the reward for becoming the biggest in the home audio space 
and you know kind of like taking out Bose and some of those other players was then we get um to play against amazon google and apple right and i think i think the key i think the key at the end of the day is you know really being focused and staying focused on the consumer and like that job to be done and pushing like using your strengths and kind of pushing the experience forward trying to look at the macro trends that are happening and how can you intersect those with an experience you think will be valuable to customers i would say the distractions you know at at rim really came when it was much more about chasing competition and you know and also some of the incentives from some of the mobile phone carriers that were out there that we you know we started to chase as opposed to lead and that's a very important thing and it's hard right it's hard when you have a lot of forces coming your way and people are like no you should do this or we'll write you a big check to go do this um i think staying true to your mission and kind of where you need to go and where you think the customer is right and continuing to stay in touch with the customer is extremely important yeah it's it's so hard though i mean you think about i love that idea of jobs to be done because it's it's not just jobs to be done today but jobs to be done tomorrow and how do you how do you get there first as as a leader as you said is is always hard so you're looking at trends what else are you doing you know, trying to think a little bit, uh, you know, there might be hard decisions you have to make about the future in the sense that what you're doing today may not be what you do in the next decade. And so a great example of that is with BlackBerry, we, and there's a great book called Losing the Signal on, you know, really this whole experience at BlackBerry um, that I was one of the contributors to, and it goes into great detail on this, but BlackBerry Messenger, you know, was really, was something that had 80 million daily active users that was really um, on the upswing as our hardware business was falling behind and on the downswing. And, you know, we had a moment in time where we could have taken BlackBerry Messenger and put it on iOS devices, Android devices, and the the PC. And we, you know, we, we didn't have the courage to make that call because we knew that it was driving, you know, the hardware sales as well. And so we really wanted to do that. And so that's where, then you get to another Clay Christensen, um, you know, innovators dilemma situation where you can't move to what you should and would be the next big growth vector because you are focused on, you know, the history and and kind of where you've been and what you think you have been in the past. And so in contrast to that here at Sonos, one of the things that I did that was a bit sacrilegious to some degree was that partnership with Ikea that I mentioned, where we took our software and we took some of our, basically the insides of a Sonos speaker and partnered with Ikea to enable them to create furniture that makes sound and those kind of things, because I want to experiment with things like that. So, because, you know, maybe that's more indicative of the future we will have than, you know, building products ourselves, right. And those kind of things. And so I do think that you have to be willing to experiment and be willing to be open to the fact that what you do, you know, today may not be what you do, you know, 10 years from now um, as well. Sometimes you have to eat your own lunch. Yep. Yeah. Uh, That sounds like some lessons learned there. Uh, When you left Rim for Sonos, uh, that had to be an interesting decision on your part. Um, Different space, technology, but different space, different competitors, different technology, both good brands, but what was it that was really exciting about that for you and in that opportunity? Yeah. As I've kind of reflected on why I joined, you know, both uh, BlackBerry and, and as well Sonos, it really boils down to three things. And it's one is the mission, you know, and do I feel connected to the mission that the company is on? And the second is, is the people um, that are inside the company. And the third is the opportunity, an opportunity, you know, to really learn, grow and contribute um, in a big way. And do I think the market opportunity is there? So that 
that is my criteria for like why I joined the companies. And I do encourage people to think about what's important to them and what's their criteria going to be as they think about what they want to start or where, where, you know, perhaps where they want to work. So for me, you know, I knew I didn't want to go to, I had a lot of colleagues from um, RIM that would go to Apple or Samsung and something like that. And if you would have, you know, being Canadian, um, having started there when there were 150 people and really built it. I mean, if you would have cut me, I would have bled Blackberry at that point. I still do. Um, and so <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to go to, and I, I just felt like I couldn't, after all those years of, you know, selling lots of people on Blackberry, I just, it just didn't feel right to go to, you know, a competitor or something like that. <laughs> and I talked to the, I had Sonos and I talked to the founder of Sonos, John, wow. and um, I was just intrigued you know, by what they were doing. And John had had an experience similar to mine where he had started a company and it had grown into, you know, billion, multi-billion dollar valuation called software.com. And then, you know, went through a bumpy patch and that kind of thing. And Sonos was really the second act for him. And so we kind of bonded over the notion of trying to build, you know, not only great products and products that we're proud of, and, you know, we'd be proud, we're proud for our family and friends to use, um, but, you know, something as well culturally that would be great and sustainable for the long term. And so we really bonded over the way we thought a lot of companies did things wrong. Um, and the idea that there's a right way to go and build an organization and build a culture and build it for the long term. Um, so that far outlasts any individual and neither of us, you know, really bought into the fault of the, the kind of the, uh, what is it like the myth of the founder, you know, as almost like God and some of these things right. that, you know, right. kind of appear. And so I really connected with John, um, the other members of the team, and it felt like I could take everything that I had learned at RIM, you know, both good and bad and help apply that at Sonos. And it was an opportunity for me to take on an expanded role. Um, and John said he eventually, you know, he wouldn't want to be leading the company um, forever. And so that seemed like a, you know, a, a good partnership. And here we are. So oh, fantastic. And yep. a good chance for you to stretch and learn. Yeah, exactly. Part of yep. it. Uh, so I, I don't know if this is dicey or not. You can tell us as much or as little as, as you can, I suppose. Uh, but uh, you had a major lawsuit against Google and I'm already getting some questions in here. Uh, you know, taking on Google seems intimidating no matter what the arena. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about that experience? You know, what, what drove that? And, and uh, you know, are, are you happy with where we've gone with it? Yeah, I mean, it you know, it was one. It was after a lot of conversations, you know, with Google about the fact that. Um, so to set the stage, I guess I would say, you know, we invented this category, which today now is pretty well known and and understood as the smart speaker category. So yeah. Amazon's jumped in, Apple's jumped in, Google's jumped in, you know. So we've had conversations with, of course, people that jump in, you know, and John and I, having been, you know, through this a little bit and understanding that when you are in a big category, something that's going to be big in the long term. You want to protect your inventions and that's what we've done through our patents and intellectual property portfolio we knew people would be coming in and we want to make sure that we are protecting the inventions and the hard work of all of our people sure. so you have those conversations with people and we work with you know we work with all of those companies and their support their music services and and um voice services and we still do um even with google but it came to a point where i didn't feel they were um, taking it seriously and like i had to stand up not just for you know, our intellectual property um, and Sonos. I also testified in front of uh, Congress for um, antitrust um, as well, because I feel like 
you know, there's a few large technology companies that have really grown, you know, in great power that can reduce competition, which isn't great for society and up and coming entrepreneurs. And so there's been some companies that, you know, have really had challenges where some of the big tech companies have simply copied what their products have done and they haven't had, you know, patent protections or they haven't really known what they're doing and, you know, and they're done to me, that's not right. So we were thoughtful in terms of making sure that we protected our inventions and, you know, we felt Google infringed on those inventions. And uh, just this month, the International Trade Commission has agreed um, with that and said that um, Google needs to stop doing that and they need to stop shipping products that infringe on our intellectual property. So that's a big win for us. What, what steeled me in taking the stand is... I mean, entire life experience of just standing up for what's right and watching at times, you know, Jim and Mike at RIM uh, really stand up for what's right. And in some of the battles that we had there at certain times, uh, John, you know, as well, so knows my parents, right, in terms of doing these things and just a, a general feeling of, you know, like trying to stand up for everybody that's out there trying to invent something and make sure that we create, you know, hopefully a basis and um, really a society where we have more, you know, entrepreneurs and innovators and they can make a go of it, right. Without having big and powerful forces simply copy what they're doing, you know, and kind of suck the oxygen out of the room. So yeah, it's, you know, it'll be an ongoing battle. Um, as we go through these things, you know, there's still a federal court case and damages that we'll need to uh, work out through that. But I, definitely feel a responsibility to do it for both our team and all the people that have put their blood, sweat and tears into creating this industry, this category. And then as well for all the others that are out there trying to break through with their um, next innovation. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks, Patrick. I I think, you know, it's admirable. And I think uh, the tech industry in general, entrepreneurs, it's a great thing that you're taking that on and that you have the, you know, the depth of pockets to do that where some entrepreneurial companies don't. True. Right. So uh, I appreciate it a lot. So, you know, this takes us a little bit, maybe Canada, U.S. differences. Uh, Canada has an interesting history with innovation. We we do a lot of innovation, but we don't necessarily scale it well. We don't hold on to it well. What do you think about Canada and Canadians in general might do better about establishing global brands? You know, it's interesting. I really think, and, and you know, you're seeing it now with uh, Toby and Harley at Shopify and Dax at Lightspeed, and there's all sorts of great companies that are, you know, emerging. I think some of it, having now really experienced in depth the difference, and again, huge generalizations, right? We are going to make in this conversation, but I think there's a a belief in the United States, a bit of like, you know, why not me? Um, and, and I was encouraging, you know, you and I were talking about the C100. I was encouraging Canadian entrepreneurs, the same thing, like, why not you? Like, there's no, there's no reason, particularly now that the next great company or brand can't come out of anywhere, quite frankly, but in Canada, we have such an educated, amazing workforce. We have everything we need. We have the money now as well. So there's no shortage and VCs from the US will fund Canadian companies. You don't have to move. You don't have to do these things. Like we have all the tools that we need. And I really think, Eric, from everything I see, there's often a lot of hand wringing around, you know, well, can we really do it? Can we not? Like we almost, we have a well-placed, you know, sometimes well-intentioned kind of, you know, questioning of that, but that I don't see with a lot of American entrepreneurs where they're more like, of course I can do this because like, why not? And from everything I've seen, 
like I think I've been inspired by, you know, some of and we saw this a little bit when we um, started hiring a lot more people out of the United States to come to Waterloo when we were at Blackberry, like there's a bit of a spirit of just like, yeah, like, let's give it a go, you know, and, and why not me? And that's the question, you know, I say to any entrepreneur that's going through is that there's nothing special about being in Silicon Valley these days as there, you know, maybe was in, in days where we couldn't do this, um, or we couldn't, you know, collaborate on code or, you know, do those kind of things. But we've been, uh, both of the companies that I've had the honor of working for have have not been in Silicon Valley, and we've been able to become you know world leaders. And I think the I think more and more companies will be like that. I don't think you have to be there. I think you get a, a different perspective, and that you can see different things about jobs to be done. I think you can attract different talent. Um, I think it's useful in certain industries in that way. And so I think a lot of it is just getting on with it. And if you have a good idea, like pursuing it, and and you know, and like you can go get the money and all of these things. There is nothing in our way. There is nothing in our way in Canada of, you know, having a very vibrant uh, entrepreneurial community. And we do to some degree. And I think we have a better immigration policy than the United States, for instance, that yeah. should also help us. Right. And those kind of things. And so it's really a matter of, you know, just the spirit of recognizing that we can, you know, do whatever we put our minds to, to go through it. And there's, there's, there's fewer and fewer barriers than ever before. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I, I think it's why not us? And I think it's, uh, you know, a question we need to ask more and more. I, it, it can be done from here. And I think there's some advantages we have in Canada, as yeah. you pointed out some of them. And I, I think, yeah. you know, looking out the window in the snow may not be one of them right now. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I'm looking at your window. It's a little different. Uh, other than that, I think we've got some great advantages. Uh, totally. Sure. Totally. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to say, you know, given that idea of giving back and you've you've really helped our students a lot in, in the entrepreneurship ecosystem we're trying to uh, create here at Western and, uh, and in Canada, you know, uh, to a larger extent. So what is it that, that drives you for that to, to give back uh, in the way that you do? Because you've been so generous with your time and, and it is appreciated. Well, thank you for that. That's very kind of you. And I, I feel, you know, I feel like I need to do a lot more. And, and I think you go through certain phases in your career where, you know, like that is your responsibility, quite frankly. But I, but I also feel like, you know, I've, I came into it with certain, which I'm sure a lot of students go through right now, which is like, what is, what is it like? And can I navigate this world of starting a business and like building a global brand and some of these things, you know, it can be intimidating and it can feel like a mystery, right? To some degree, I want to demystify it you know, for people and help them understand that they can do it, um, that I'm just, you know, a regular person from a regular town that, you know, had grandparents that were farmers and my dad worked at Ontario Hydro and my mother was a nurse and, you know, and I went to Ivy, which is great, you know, as a, a school, certainly like on the Canadian context, but when you play globally, you know, there's like a lot of, well, did you go to, you know, Stanford or Harvard or all these things? And what I found is like, again, none of that needs to be in your way. And sometimes we can over rotate a little bit on some of the, some of the, the barriers we might set up for ourselves. And so I spent some of my early career, I think I was trying to emulate people that I saw being successful, you know, as a way of, of doing that. And really it boils down to like finding your own path and being true to yourself. It sounds super cliche, but it's true is like, you know, making sure that it's kind of connecting with what you're good at, not necessarily passionate about, but what you're good at and 
I just want to help people, you know, find that um, and kind of find that path for themselves that they feel like, yeah, you know, like I'm having some success, I'm able to build this and I understand it and there's no reason I can't be successful. No matter how successful somebody is, and I've had a chance to meet some really successful people, like they're still trying to figure it out, like, you know, and trying to figure out what's next. And like, you know, right. and if they're on top, how do you stay on top, right? You know, to your point earlier, right? And so because this is all very precarious. And so nobody has it all figured out. You know, as one early in my career, somebody had said, everybody puts their pants on the same way, right? And yeah. so, you know, they're, I, I hope it inspires people to give it a go if they have an idea, right? Or maybe, you know, take that job at the the company that maybe their classmates would scratch their heads a little bit at, but that feels yeah. like the right one to them. I mean, that was the case with me. And people go, people saying like, where are you going? What's this going? <laughs> you know, like what? In Waterloo? Yeah. Um, and so Back I you're farming with berries. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but, but I hope, you know, I hope it inspires people um, a little bit to maybe take a chance, right? As well. And I, one other chance I took that, you know, for me, I hadn't really traveled a lot, but it was a couple years. What was it? What was it? I was probably four years into RIM was um, starting our business in Asia Pacific and moving halfway around the world. Right. And yeah. I didn't, you know, know how, know how to speak different languages or all those things, but I did it. And it was one of the best things to do. Right. Which was put yourself in those situations where you're really stretched, you're out of your comfort zone. It makes you better as a, better as a person, better as a leader, and just provides you a better perspective on life. And so um, I hope to inspire people to to do that and help demystify like what this world is all about. Yeah, no, well done. I, I, we're, we're kind of answering some of the questions in the uh, in the text that are, but if you have other questions, please, uh, you know, bring them up. But, you know, somebody was asking, you know, do you have any advice for university students? But I think what you just said was was uh, brilliant that way. Uh, you know, anything else that you would add to that or anything else you wish you knew uh, before launching your career when you were at Well, university? I do. I do think it, kind of getting in, getting in there, being curious, right? Um, so one of the founders of BlackBerry, uh, Doug Freegan, he was the guy that came and set up the, he was under my desk day one, setting up the phone, like, you know, and the computer for me that was there. And so there's a degree as well of like, just do what it takes. Like when I, when, you know, I was starting up our Asia Pacific region, there was a lot of like dirty work involved and just like, you know, sorts of stuff that I think some people would say, like, well, I shouldn't have to do this or I shouldn't have to do that. And there's, you know, that that's my emails on our support site, Sonos.com, you know, today so that customers can email me if they have an issue. Right. And I will respond to as many as I can. I can't respond to all of them, but there's many that I do. And so I think the like staying kind of humble about it all, um, you know, staying curious about what's happening in the company, in the world with customers, all of those things is really important. And, and again, you know, follow instinct for most of the people that I know, you know, their instinct is pretty good in terms of situations where, you know, they'll, they'll have a chance to be successful and kind of the path that they're on and those kind of things. And I think it's a lot of times outside forces and ideas of what we should do that maybe knock us off the path that um, might be best for us. And so, you know, stay true to yourself as you think about where you're going. And again, it's not about what you're passionate about, because you might be passionate about, um, a sport or, you know, other things that really aren't going to necessarily be your career, but it's about finding what you're good at. Right. And, and where, you know, where, how that gets you kind of energized on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, if you can tap into that, I think it's something powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, really great question here from Matthew, uh, in an early stages of a startup, uh, and you're building your entrepreneurial idea out there, how do you protect your idea 
while also reaching out to those people who can help, you know, grow your idea and make it something uh, worthwhile. Well, that's a, you know, there's, there are legal mechanisms like NDAs um, you want. So what one thing would be, if it is something that's truly unique and different is be in the background filing for patents and making sure that you have that covered because that, that will help. And then even if somebody were to copy what you're doing, you will have that protection and be able to do it. But I, I think it's, you know, I think it's tough because you are starting to meet with partners and those kind of things. And, and we, we were very paranoid about this in meeting with Microsoft in the early days, because we were integrating with their email system. And so we wouldn't tell them much, you know, in terms of what we were doing and just tried to, you know, tried to, to provide as little as possible to try and go through that. Cause we felt like they could, you know, try and right. copy what we were doing and those kind of things. And so, you know, it, there is no, there's no like playbook on that. Um, you know, you kind of have to figure out, you have to figure out the partner you're dealing with and kind of what, you know, what the person you're dealing with and how you can trust them. But at the same time, you know, in the background, I'd highly recommend you be filing um, intellectual property on your ideas and making sure you're protecting it in that way. And then as you get bigger, you can have NDAs and those things, but even those are of nominal value to some degree and just making sure that you've got um, actual intellectual property filed through patents or copyrights in some cases and, and those kind of things I think is important. And, and work with people you trust. I mean, yeah. most people are, you know, there to help you. They're not that's there right. To, yeah. That's right. That, yeah, that's a very good point. I would say through my career, and again, actually, like, you know, having lived and worked in Asia and then as well in Europe, you know, not only are most people um, deserve to be trusted, and but I think we're much more similar than sometimes people make, um, you know, make different countries and different people out to be. And, you know, yeah. largely people are out there trying to do a good job and raise a family, you know, and lead a good life. And, and if anything, like, you know, I think it should encourage people that most people are out um, for that. And you'll probably have an instinct if somebody is not, you know, not that way. Right. We all live and learn on that. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Patrick, we talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, as a non-tech student getting into tech and it's a question here. Uh, do you have advice for non-technical students and uh, maybe how to break into the industry? I did a lot of, early work. So early on, um, RIM, I was, I think I was the only non-engineer that was there. Yeah, pretty much. And so I did a lot of work, you know, at nights reading and understanding. Um, and so, and even to this day, like on new technologies that are coming into our industry, um, I have a well-curated um, list of like podcasts, but as well, people I follow on Twitter that write and are doing research and those kind of things. And so I think you have to do a little more work on technology and trends and some of those things. But what I've found is, you know, over a period of time, if you stay curious and you stay, you know, continuing to stay up on what's happening, like you almost will catch up in a way because certain aspects of the technical education and technology education or engineering like will be dated as well, right? And so there comes a point where it almost like crosses over if you're staying there, but you have a little more work to do um, coming up. And I would say get started in, you know, like a product management type of job um, if you can, because then you'll be at the intersection of both engineering and marketing um, and some of the expertise that you've built on the business side. And so you can bring some of that into it, but it's good to force you into working with engineering and some of the technologists and understanding their perspectives and that's a whole art in itself is working with those folks um, as well. But I would encourage you to do it and kind of, you kind of, you know, you have to put yourself out there, which is a good thing, um, but try to step into product um, management. If you can, you may have to do product marketing, then into product management, but there's really no reason you can't over time um, get into, you know, that, those kind of disciplines. Um, and I've seen 
both engineers and uh, non-engineers be successful in those roles as well. So yeah, yeah. Well, this uh, this is a, a tough question. Uh, probably something you haven't had to deal with, but uh, most entrepreneurs and most leaders that I know have at some point in their career. Uh, do you have any advice on dealing with imposter syndrome? Mm. Um, I do have any advice on it. I, I think you know, you know how how I mentioned that everybody's still you know trying to figure it out is probably the case, right? I would look at certainly when I was at Ivy and in early days of career, I would look up at people like Jim and Mike or, um, you know, somebody like a Steve Jobs or at that point, you know, um, and you're like, oh, they must have it all sorted out and know exactly what's going on and be on top of it. And you'd learn over time that they don't. And Eric, I'm sure you've, you know, seen this too, is everybody every day is trying to just like figure it out. Right. And like, you know, and understand, and of course we're creating direction. We have, you, you get more experience as you go. And so you start to understand and you start to pattern match. And so you can understand different scenarios and situations and you get better at how to, um, build relationships, interact with people and, and some of those skills, but still, you know, um, I want Sonos to be here, you know, long after I'm gone, um, and be something that is growing, you know, relevant and a great place to work. And so I'm always thinking about that and thinking about, okay, what are we going to do and what's next and what could disrupt us and some of these things. And so I think the, um, the reality is, is that, you know, if anybody looks like they have it all together, um, it's only per perhaps like at a moment in time, or you're seeing one aspect of that particular moment in time or where they are. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, I assure you, they do not have it all together uh, in going through there. And that's, that's why I say as well, like the whole notion of why not you, right? Like, yeah. why not us? Why not anybody in Canada? Because I, I think it's just, again, ge huge generalization. But I think for some reason, Americans are better at being able to say, like kind of put that out of their mind and be like, yeah, I can go and do this and they will go and do it. And they're no different. Like it's no different whatsoever. Um, and so it's almost like, you know, um, you have to realize that, that most people are like that. And I guess if they're yeah. not, they're probably narcissistic or something. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say that. Exactly. You know, all good leaders that I know have a little bit of that in them because they want totally. to get better. They, they know oh, they don't know it all, right? Yes. With Andy, Andy Groves Intel, right? Managing yep. through paranoia because he was yep. always worried about somebody, yes. you know, overtaking yeah. him and stuff. And yep. uh, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's uh, something you just have to understand. Hey, everybody goes through that. And that's uh, right. It's about what are you doing to get through it? And why yep. not you? I love Yeah. That. Don't let it freeze you to your point is that look like so. I work every day to like earn the honor to have the job that I have, right? And I'm yeah. always working towards that. And it was great. One of our board members, you know, when I was appointed CEO, one of our board members said, you know, you're not ready and you will figure it out. Right. No one's ever ready. <laughs> it was his point. No one awesome. is, no one is ever ready. No one's ever yeah. ready to start a company. No one's ever ready to be a parent, but we all figure it out. Right. As we get into these things. And so, you know, there are what millions of people that have done this, you know, um, ahead of you and you will figure it out, you know, as well. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, all those books behind you, top top three books you'd recommend uh, either to, to students today or, or just that, you know, really top of mind for you that made an impression. Yeah. Oh, so um, this is a tough one, um, but Self Renewal by John Gardner is a good one. That's, I think, from the 60s. Um, so that's a good one. Um, the Courage to be Disliked um, is another one by a Japanese author. Um, and that's really good for people that are um, you know, people pleasers as well. Yeah. And I think like getting into Ivy, like do all the things we do, we, you know, like it's a lot of people that have 
done everything quote unquote right. And so I think that's a good one um, to be sure. reading. I love Shoe Dog um, by Phil Knight, which is a great one from an entrepreneurial perspective. And if you, th yeah, and that's a good one for if you think, you know, somebody has it all figured out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's also another good one for from an entrepreneurial perspective is Yvonne Schwinnard, the founder of Patagonia. It's called uh, Let My People Go Surfing. Um, you want to talk about developing a different type of outlook on business and culture and those kind of things. That's a, It's a fantastic book. If we had more companies like that, I think we'd be... Yeah much better off so amazing yeah, yeah I, I haven't read that one i'll have to, I'll have to yeah, it's a great one yeah john's that's a classic i didn't it's before your time man uh, yeah yeah uh all right i mean i got a good one here from eduardo uh what criteria should i look for when start when i start hiring my founding team or those first several people around me um you know, it depends what your skill set is, right? And what you, you kind of what you're pursuing, I guess, you know, as a, as a business. So it's highly dependent. Um, just trying to think if there's something fundamental. So I'm very specific, whether it's, you know, we just happen to go through this for board members, but as well for a couple of different positions on my team, I try to get very specific on what it is that I'm looking for experience or skill set wise. And then you're looking for point in time. So I would say, if you're looking for people that are, uh, if, if this is the first company you're founding, ideally you find somebody that has been through a startup experience and can kind of bring that and complement, you know, your idea and where you're going with that. Because if you're all in the same boat in terms of like trying to figure out how to do this, it's probably, um, you know, you're going to reinvent the wheel a little bit or have to learn lessons that um, people have already learned. So I might index more on that. And then you'll hear from everybody, you know, try to hire somebody that's better than, you know, you um, in the particular domain and you have to get smart in whatever domain it is that you are doing. And so whatever domain you're hiring for, like, let's say if it's sales, right, you need to have a little bit of knowledge in that particular area. So you have to do a little bit of work. You have to talk to some people in that area, um, I would say, you know, and, and ask through it, but it's hard. It's very, as I think through that question, it's very situation dependent. Yeah. Um, in, you know, in going through who you're going to hire in a particular moment in time. So, yeah, I, I yeah. think so too better. I mean, you know, people that have the same values you do, but that complement your skill set and help you in the direction you're trying to go, right? Yeah, I think the mission part of it's pretty important is like, do they believe in the idea that you're talking about? And because that can be a powerful factor, you know, to really rally people if they're going to believe in you. I mean, you have to get them on board if they're going to join, but uh, if they're really behind the idea um, and they're willing to kind of put that same level of energy and commitment into it, I think that's, you know, that's really the key um, versus, you know, are they somebody that's just, you know, t taking it because they just want a job or, or, you know, need a different job. So to your point about values, and then I think the mission is really important there too, and their alignment with it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, here's an interesting question. What successful strategies has Sonos implemented during the pandemic? It's hard to believe it's still, you know, we're still in it, um, I guess, an endemic at this point. But it was so uh, scary in those first, you know, few weeks as well, because, you know, we've been waiting, really, I think most companies have been waiting for like a recession to come. Um, things had been very good for a while. Yeah. And so we threw out our playbook. Um, I know there's other companies that did this too. And I said, okay, what's most important right now? And it was support our people, um, make sure we're on um, strong financial footing. Because um, in a business like ours, right, with inventory building things, you can quickly have major problems. And then third, um, can we bring more joy to customers? And so those became like the three things that we just rallied around 
and supporting our people. So we started to do um, things where we gave something called care time and people could take time off to look after their, um, you know, their kids, their relatives, like whatever they needed to do. And we tried to provide as much flexibility as possible. And we took some really hard actions to you know, get ourselves on strong financial footing, um, which were difficult, but necessary. And then we, you know, we kind of, we threw out all our marketing campaigns. We did new ones, which really focused on trying to bring, you know, a little joy and a little music to people yeah. while they're stuck at home. And so we ended up kind of coming out with some campaigns that were super effective on that. And it felt really, that was a great thing to rally the company around is how, you know, even though it's, it's nothing compared to, you know, the kind of impact that, of course, healthcare workers and others had to be able to find your way to contribute at least a little bit and try to help make life better for people while they're yeah. stuck at home was a really powerful, you know, kind of rallying cry for sure. our people. And I shifted, you know, I used to do an all hands with the team once or twice a month, and then I shifted to doing it every single week. And I also produced a video every Friday, I just recorded a video, what was on my mind and trying to keep people yeah. connected and you know, those kind of things. And so I really amped up the communication um, yeah. as well over that period. And, you know, and we've been able to weather it better than most and had a pretty, you know, successful couple of years um, in spite of all the challenges. And um, it just shows you the, you know, like the power of the human spirit and ability to prevail because our people just have done tremendous work to keep us on track launching products. And, and these are physical products. And yeah. so we've got people in the middle of the night doing Zoom calls with our facilities in Malaysia and China and checking the you know production line and, and all of these things. And the it was incredible in terms of watching how people really rose to the occasion. Now I would say, as we've been in it for a couple of years, certainly too, like people are, I think Adam uh, Grant said it well, languishing, right? In terms yeah. of this, it's been tremendous. Um, people have been great. So yeah, that's great. So more communication on your part. I, you know, a, a twist of the mission a little bit, maybe to yeah. say hey, we're bringing yeah. joy into people's lives, uh, yep. you know, in, in a, in a tough time and yep. yeah, rally people and supporting our people, making sure, right. Like we try to give our people, you know, try to help them through this period and be more flexible. Um, you know, I would say, and those kind of things, but, uh, and we did move some products around. So we moved some products around based on what we thought would be happening and what might be more appropriate when, um, so we made some of those decisions as well, which okay. were hard and, and are fundamental to what we do. How, how has uh, supply chain been? Have, have you been affected? Are you, you vertical yeah, it's been a, integrated or how are yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, across, yeah, I've been, you know, in the tech sector for 24 years and it was the worst I'd ever seen it. Um, and it continue, you know, it, and it's gotten a little better uh, in terms of where we are today. Um, but I've never seen it the way that it was. It was just, you know, it was a situation where everybody stopped overnight. So when the pandemic struck us, like many just yeah. said, okay, don't you know produce anymore. We don't know what's going to happen and we want to preserve cash. And everybody was doing that, that builds anything. And then, you know, two months later, there's injection, you know, yeah. uh, you know, money injected in the economy. And it's like, okay, we've, you know, we as a society are figuring this out to some degree and people are spending and everything flipped the other way. And yeah. uh, it's been, it has been very, very difficult. And our team's done a phenomenal job to be able to, you know, come up with parts. When we build the board that goes inside a speaker, we, you know, we'll have different components on it and what have you. And we will have, we will usually have maybe one or two um, different components for each part of the board. And we're talking 300, 400 components that are part of a board. And now we will have six or seven of those boards for each product because of the different suppliers and trying to 
make up for gaps that are there and those kind of things. And so we've had a re-engineering team that's done just tremendous work in trying to make sure that we can continue to ship products, yeah. but it's unprecedented. Um, never seen anything like it. And it's the good news is it's getting a little better. So good, good, good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good question here on Sonos uh, Radio HD. Where does it go from here? Uh, do you see it as competitive with the other services that your users use? So Sonos Radio HD is our, um, you know, really our streaming service. A couple of years ago, we'd had some radio stations and, um, that were on the system, but we felt like it wasn't really great for the experience and we could do better, especially for users that didn't have a streaming service. But what we found is that most of our users will have a streaming service like Spotify or Apple Music or, or something, and they will listen to Sonos Radio as well. So there's times where they want to listen to On Demand and a particular artist and those kind of things through Spotify. And then they also will listen to um, Sonos Radio. And so we've been, I think it's the third most listened to service on our system right now, coming out of nowhere, basically. And um, we've really tapped into some unique artists and some unique uh, ideas and playlists. So Kareem Abdul-Jabbar just did yeah. a station for us, uh, Impulse Records for Jazz, right? And so um, we've been able to tap into some neat stuff and so I expect us to continue to do that. It's also been a fun outlet for a lot of our people. So we've run stations that our people internally have led. And we did one for Pride Month that um, one of our ERGs did and for Black History Month and, and these kind of things. And so it's been a fun way to kind of bring the brand to life. And so I expect you'll see more on that front. And I think it's very complimentary to what our friends at Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google are doing on the music service front. Okay, I, just to follow up on that piece, and it, it was uh, from the question, uh, you know, their underlying question in some ways was how do you balance the software and hardware improvements without becoming competitive with those partners that you really do need to be uh, successful down the road? I think most in the sector recognize now that, it, you know, we're both uh, competitors and as well partners. And so, you know, like that happens in certain areas. Um, and so, you know, most people are pretty um, aware of it and the, you know, they don't really, I don't think there's really much concern, you know, and, and we try to compliment, we're not trying to replicate what Spotify is doing. They're not trying to, to replicate what we're doing. So I think there's, you know, I think there's like some overlap, but not that much. Not that much. Okay. Uh, great question here. What was the most difficult situation you faced as CEO at Sonos? Um, most difficult, probably the, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, making um, a decision to say goodbye to about 10% of our people. Wow. Um, so that was to get on the right financial footing and go through that. And that, you know, there's nothing harder than, you know, um, having to say goodbye to people um, in your company. And, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's certainly the hardest thing I've had to, had to do. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we, st we kind of started out uh, earlier, uh, very first question, talking a little bit about the future. Anything else about the future of Sonos or, or major trends that you see that, that could affect Sonos and, and how you think about the future? Brent? Yeah, I know there's some really big ones happening now. Uh, you know, I keep saying it's the golden age of audio. So we're seeing, you know, more music created and going online, but podcasts as well. I mean, just like, you know, podcasts are going through the roof and lots of listening, audiobooks. Um, some of the social audio as well, like with Twitter spaces and clubhouse and some of that, that has peaked up. So we're seeing more and more audio. So that golden age of audio is a big driver that we've seen and people are listening more and more and engagement looks really good. The, um, I call it Hollywood at home where we're seeing, you know, more and more, I think this year it's going to be over $20 billion spent in creating, you know, streaming content to go to the home. 
And so we play in that because we create sound bars and home theater products, which um, you know create great sound and theater-like sound uh, in your home. And so that's been a that's a huge one that I think is going to continue, even as people might return to the theater as well and those kind of things. Like everybody is is um, you know really enjoying like all of this great content, and it doesn't you know it looks like Netflix, um, Roku, HBO, everybody, Apple is just spending more and more money creating this content. So I think that's going to continue to be a big one. And then the great reshuffling is the other thing with a lot more people working from home and in different locations and all of these things is that if you're at home, it can be lonely at times, um, especially like if you're home all day long. And so uh, music plays a great role and we can play a great role um, in the home there. Um, and so I think all of those trends are playing, you know, in our favor. Audio today is about an $80 billion a year market. And we, you know, we'll do $2 billion this year. So there's a lot of room for us to grow. We feel like we're in about um, 10% of the homes that we, you know, ultimately should be in. Um, so we got a long, long way to go on that front. And every day we're trying to, you know, fill more homes and keep it, keep it moving. So all right. Well, I have one more question. So if something else doesn't pop up here, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll leave it with you for this, uh, you know, kind of greatest lesson learned that had an impact on your journey and maybe your lesson that you leave with uh, the audience today. I definitely go back to be true to yourself, right. You know, in terms of the, um, you know, I think early in our careers, we can have a, you know, almost, um, because maybe it is imposter syndrome or, or what have you, you, you think there's a way that you should show up or you should lead yeah. or, you know, that there's a proper way of doing it. And, you know, I think it has to be authentic to who you are and, you know, kind of what you learned, how, how you develop relationships with people. And so I would ask people to, you know, be true to themselves in terms of where, you know, what they're choosing to start or where they're choosing to work, who they're choosing to work with. Um, all of those things. And then, you know, going, going to work and feeling like, okay, this is a place that, um, you know, I can, I can bring, you know, my best and I feel like I'm, um, I can do what I was meant to do. Um, and I feel, you know, comfortable kind of in my own skin. I think it's really important. And, uh, and I think everybody has something to offer and, you know, bring into the world and, and is unique in their own way. And so embrace it, you know, embrace what you're uniquely good at um, find what you're uniquely good at, um, over time and, you know, um, pitch in, but, but stay true to yourself, you know, and I think you'll, you'll find your path and, uh, you don't have to try and be something that you're not, um, at the end of the day. The Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Quantum Shift 2008 alum, Connie Clarici and Closing the Gap Healthcare Group. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player or visit entrepreneurship.uwo.ca slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.